Lots of thoughts go through my mind as I sit there before I get up to preach. I suppose lots of thoughts go through most people's minds before I get up to preach. Uh, This morning, the overwhelming thought, and I apologize if I get a little bit emotional, is that our God is good. When I listen to Lydia's story, I don't know, she already left. Did she? She did. Um, the power of a little girl wondering if she's loved halfway on the other side of the world. And then God providentially, sovereignly bringing somebody. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And then, Tyler, if I'd have known you could do that, you'd have been doing that a long time ago. I don't know which I'm more upset about, her testimony or Tyler's thing. (laughs) It was really, really good. Let me pray for us. Father, as your children, we wish for these next few moments to lift you up, to make much of you, to exalt you through the hearing and the teaching and the preaching of your word. We pray that our souls would be brought before your very heavenly throne. And that, Father, as we catch even a small glimpse of who you are, we would be enamored. Father, your word and those that came back and reported to the Pharisees in our text this morning said, no one ever spoke like this man. And I believe That indeed is true, more today than yesterday, more tomorrow, I pray for all of us. God, would you speak to us now through your word, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And so, you've heard the title of the sermon, I've decided, I feel like the hinge the, the verse that the, the whole section of Scripture here turns on is when they come back and they say, no one ever spoke like this man. Ever. Yet it's interesting, isn't it? Christ is, even in our text today, very divisive. If you just read the text, you see it, and we will in just a moment, and we'll see how he was divisive. Though no one ever spoke like him, his speaking divided the crowds. Christ brings division to our everyday lives as well. You've had the experience, I know I have, Maybe, maybe you're sitting out at a soccer match with your children 
And, uh, or maybe you're at work uh, in the break room in a conversation or somewhere, and uh, you're talking about the typical things, news, sports, weather, maybe politics, and someone in that group decides they're going to step out maybe in faith, and they say something like this, well, since I gave my life to Christ, I've begun to see some of these issues in a different way now. And you'll notice when someone does that, people in the conversation begin to kind of get nervous and antsy. They start to look for an excuse to leave, you know, maybe... One person says, ah, you know, I just thought about it. I got to get home and rearrange my sock drawer. And another one says, yep, I've got elective open heart surgery today. No real problems, just trying to make sure everything's good. And he's out the door. And then maybe one person stays, but you quickly find out the only reason they're staying is to argue with you that Jesus is a phony and that there really is no God. So Jesus is divisive. In our families, we see that to be true. In our neighborhoods, we see it to be true. With our coworkers, we see it to be true. This has been true for over 2,000 years. And we see it in our text. Look with me again at John 7, starting in verse 40 and going through verse 44. It says... When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. So some of them think he's the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and David comes from Bethlehem? the village where he was born. So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one, no one laid hands on him. So we see the beginning of this division that Christ brings. People are beginning, even in, this, in our text right here, to make a judgment about who he is and the interesting thing about their judgment is they're making it off of bad intelligence. They're making their judgment off of misinformation because we know from other texts, Jesus indeed was born in Bethlehem, that there was a censor and that his family had to rush down there and be where they were supposed to be for their censor. And then later he moves to the region, which is Galilee, which is what it's talking about here, but inside the region of Galilee is Nazareth. And so they are judging who Jesus is based on poor information. Things haven't changed a whole lot in 2,000 years. We form our opinions on who Jesus is mostly on what we hear from other people, from the media, from social outlets. There is very little, very little firsthand information, I think, even probably unfortunately among believers, where we're picking up our Bibles and we're reading firsthand who this person is. 
So much of what we get is coming from bad information sources. So, you know, my throat, my throat is a little bit raw. Let me. This week, I've been, I've been building a friendship with a person that is, if you knew him, you would say he is a long way from inside Christianity. However, when I first met him, I was a little bit put off by him. Um, There's some things about his lifestyle that put me off a little bit. But as I'm getting to know him week in or every few weeks, I have been praying for him. And I've been praying that God would give me an opportunity to tell him a little bit about how God has saved me. And this week, interestingly enough, and I don't even think I really prompted it, he began to tell me from A to Z his whole life story. And as he began to tell me, as a small child, his mother remarried, so he had a stepfather who was a Navy SEAL. And this Navy SEAL got very hyper-religious. And he began to take their family and his siblings, he has brothers and sisters, to this church. This particular church that he's telling me about must have been very, very, in a, in a bad way, fundamentalist, legalistic, overbearing, and uh, so much so that he was telling me when they would go swimming, his father would make sure that they all kept their shirts on, their blue jeans on, and their socks on. So you could imagine what kind of situation this is coming from. So he says every Sunday morning, every Sunday night, every Wednesday, always at church, and that this stepfather was overbearing all the time about being and doing the right things, behavior, 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 and it seemed to have very little to do with the heart. And the reason he said, I know it had very little to do with the heart, is he says he abused us in every possible way. And so this little boy is growing up in a home where he's being abused, but yet the father is religious, and he's taking them to church, and he's forcing them to do the right thing. And he said... As I grew up, they sent me to boarding school, and I ran as far from God as I could run. And I said, I understand. But I told him in our conversation, I said, that is not my Lord. What you experienced is not Jesus. What you experienced is a father who probably somehow, through his own brokenness, never processed his pain, and that he is carrying his anger and his pain out on you. And I said, please, for the sake of your soul, don't confuse what your father did to you with my Jesus. Because... What I see about Jesus in the Scriptures 
He would punish that man. Anyone that would do that to a child will receive punishment from God. And so, as we finished the conversation, I said, you know, I know you know I'm a pastor, and I'm guessing that that means you want to run as far from me as you possibly can. But I said, would you? I said to him, I never really thought I'd be a pastor. My father's a beer salesman. I didn't grow up in the church. At 20 years old, if you'd have told me to find the book of of Ephesians, I'd have fumbled around for 25 minutes. I said, but one thing I do love to do, because somebody did this with me, is I I love to individually help people by answering their questions. I said, now I've got a master's of divinity, and I do know way more than I knew then. I don't know all, but I said, if you'd be willing to get with me over coffee over a few weeks, I'd, I'd love to answer any questions you have, no Bible pounding, no preaching, just you and me answering questions. He's almost 40 years old now. You know what he said? He said, Clint, I would love that, nothing more than do that. He said, when we get, when we get through, I'm going to give you my contact information, and I, I promise if you'll call, I'll get together with you. I would love to do that. You see, the Pharisees had bad information. I think that the testimony that we heard, if you see the real Jesus, If you ever are fortunate enough to see the real Jesus, it'll change you forever. From the inside out. So look with me, though, at the Pharisees and what they're doing here in John 7, 45 through 48. It says this. The officers then came to the chief priests. So the officers were the ones sent out. They were the temple police. They were also Levites. They were sent out, and they were sent out specifically to get Jesus. So it says in 45 and 48, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? In other words, we sent you with one job, one job, and you come back empty-handed. Why did you not bring him? And the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. And I don't think they were like, I mean, he looked like Brad Pitt. I mean, this guy was awesome. I think what they were saying is the the words that he was saying and the message that he was communicating was so different than anything we've ever heard, and the authority by which he did it, we were like, man, (laughs) nobody has spoke like this man. Nobody. And so the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Kind of like, just like you idiots. Have you also been deceived? Have any of the the authorities or or the Pharisees believed in him? And you know what they're saying right there? Out of absolute arrogance, they're saying, if this Jesus was the Messiah, don't you think that we would know it? 
We're the Pharisees. We're the elite. We have all the information. We would know it if he were really who he says he is. The officers blinded by deception according to the Pharisees. And then in John 7, 48 and 49, see, they just keep blaming different people for their blindness. It says, have any of the authorities or Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd, and I think in the NIV it says mob, but this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. So now it's not just the officials that they sent out. Now it's you. It's the crowd that's there listening to him. You guys are idiots. Y'all don't see him. You can't get it. You're accursed. You don't have the law. The law being the Old Testament and all that Israel had, the oracles of uh, that was passed down to them. He's saying, the crowd doesn't have that. No wonder they can't figure out who he is. But you guys should be able to figure that out. So, unlike the, those in the crowd who either believed or rejected Christ, the officers of the temple police were confused by him. They had been sent out days earlier, the chief priest and the Pharisees, to arrest him. But when they returned empty-handed, the superiors demanded them, why did you not bring him? And to me, it's, it's, it's really interesting that the officers didn't claim that the crowd prevented them, which could have, could have been true. The crowd could have prevented them, but they basically said, in bewilderment, in amazement, they declared, no one has ever spoke like this guy. Nobody. Nobody. And we weren't about to touch him because of the way he spoke. So they're religiously trained Levites. Jesus' words have left them stunned. They've heard all, they've read all, but yet him in his presence, there before them, they're stunned by it. They're stunned by it. And, and the, the Pharisees continue their, their thing. He said, you know, they say, you have not also been led astray, have you? It's a scathing rebuke for them. Though phrased in the form of a question, they're chiding the officers for their lack of professionalism. It accused them of being naive of being duped by a religious charlatan and condescendingly placing them on the same level as the uneducated crowd. Now, this to me is really interesting because it is the religious elite that are making these officials that should have brought him back and the crowd, they're, they're making it out like you're too dumb you're too ignorant. You're too uneducated. You don't get it. You're a simpleton. You're a simple-minded idiot. Or you would have brought him back. And the reason that is so interesting to me is that was the religious set that was doing that. 2,000 years later, Satan is taking a play out of the same playbook with academia. And it is the intellectuals 
and those in, uh, with their PhDs that say, the people that go to church and believe in this Jesus, they're just simple-minded people, those poor people. They're cursed. They're idiots. They don't know what's true. It's the same issue 2,000 years later being said by a different group of people. Only those who are gullible, simple-minded, uneducated, could or would believe in this charlatan called Christ. Isn't it interesting? But here's, here's an interesting play in the whole thing. In John 7, 50, look what happens. One of the educated shows up. We've seen him in John 3. He came to Jesus. What must I do to inherit eternal life? And he says, Nicodemus, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus is like, oh, do you just go back into your mother's womb? I mean, what's the story here? That doesn't make sense. But it seems as though Nicodemus heard something in John 3. Because look what he does here. He basically comes in John 7, verse 50. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, John 3, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And look at what they do. Look at, look at how they try to embarrass him. They replied, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Bad information. Bad information. He's not from Galilee. That's not where he was born. But the Pharisees are so prideful and so arrogant that immediately they try to say, you're biased. You're from Galilee. He's from Galilee. So you think he's somebody. You're biased. What the gospel writer, what John is trying to say is, no, it's not these people that are biased. It's not Nicodemus that's biased. It's the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the ones who are biased. And it's interesting, uh, this part of this to me is challenging. I want you to look at Luke 2, 34 through 35, because I think that this plays into our text in a very significant way. Luke 2, 34 through 35. I notice it is on the screen. Simon, you may not remember the story. He's an old man, and he was told... He would not die until he saw the Messiah with his own eyes. And so in this part, we're diving in, and this is what Simon says when he sees him. And this is significant to our text today. He says, and Simon blessed them, and he said to Mary, his mother, behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rising of many in Israel. And for a sign that is opposed, and in, the, in my translation in parentheses it says, and a sword will pierce through your soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. 
Now, what's happening here is as Jesus is revealed as the true Messiah, the fall refers to judgment on the haughty and the arrogant. When Jesus is revealed, there will be a fall. There'll be a a divide. And the haughty and the arrogant will fall. And you know who will rise? The humble and the meek. The haughty and the arrogant will fall. The humble and the ri- the humble and the meek will rise. The sword refers to Mary's sorrow at Jesus' crucifixion. Paul said it another way. This is how Paul said it. You don't have to turn there. 2 Corinthians 2.16, he said that Jesus would be to one a fragrance of death and to the other a fragrance of life. And then Matthew 10.34 said it this way. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. Now, when I hear that, that's complicating for me because I know Isaiah 9, 6 says he's the prince of peace. So how do you marry the prince of peace with one that's coming to bring a sword and divide? And it even says in a lot of our text that he will divide families, father against children, mother against children, and that's That is hard. So, what do we do with that? Those who reject God and the only way of salvation through Jesus will find themselves perpetually at war with God. That's the idea. Is if you reject God, you will find yourself severed, cut, and at war with God for eternity. But those who come to Him... And repentance will find themselves at peace with God. Therefore, he can be the prince of peace to those that come. Because of Christ's sacrifice, we can be restored into a relationship of peace with God. Matthew 10, 34 and 36, Jesus said, I had come at this time not to bring peace, but a sword, a weapon which divides and severs. As a result of his visit to the earth, some children would be set against their parents and a man's enemies might be within his own household. This is because many will choose to follow Christ are hated by their family members. True followers of Christ must be willing to give up even to the point of hating all that is in their lives, even our own families, comparatively. To Christ. So one side falls, another side rises. Let me say this that even as I speak these words, because they are the words of Christ, even in this room right now, it is like a sword is slicing through this room. Some of you that may be falling are thinking, I'm hungry, I'm sleepy. I want to go home and watch television. Others, as the sword slices through, are rejoicing in the Word of God 
and the truth that comes in it and with it. And you are rising. There is a sword that Jesus brings to this world. One side falls, the other side rises. My voice is the aroma of life for some and death for others. So what did the officials hear that led them to say, no man speaks like this? We got to go back to last week's sermon. Look at John 7, 37 and 38. This is what they were talking about. And it says in 737, on the last day of the feast, the great day, and you remember I told you there was a procession. They had poured out water all over the altar, and it was in the midst of that that Jesus stands and he says, if anyone thirst, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. If you thirst, come to me and drink. Who talks like that? Who could talk like that? It would have to be somebody that wasn't human. And then he says, if you do drink of me, and I like the way another has said it. I didn't come up with the term. But your heart will become a river maker. Your heart will become a river maker. And and when I see some of your families and the grace of God flowing down out of your life, you are becoming a river maker. You are watering. You are providing shade. You are giving to the next generation and the generations after that the grace of God itself. That's a river maker. No one talk like this man. I want you to just see three claims of Christ, and then I'm going to close. In the Gospel of John, the first one is John 8, 46 through 47. Christ claimed to live a sinless life. Nobody lives a sinless life. But in John 8, 46 and 47, he says, Can any of you prove me guilty of sin? If I'm telling the truth... Why don't you believe me? He who belongs to God hears what God says. The reason you do not hear is that you do not belong to God. The reason you do not hear is because you do not belong. Do you ever wonder how somebody, and it's so easy as a pastor to see it, when you're up here sometimes, not all the time, but you can almost just see God's people hear God's voice. And it's in their face. It's in their eyes. You just kind of see it. And then you see people that hear, but they can't hear. They see, but they can't see. Another claim of Christ. Jesus Christ claimed to be the only way to God. Not one of several ways, but the one and only way. Who, who can do that? Who can say that? In John 14, 6, Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. 
There have been a lot of world religious leaders, such as Buddha, Confucius, Muhammad. They never made that claim. They never said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Y'all, that's exclusive. And that's one of the reasons Christians get the rap that we get, is that the word of the day is tolerance. And we should include everybody. And everybody is good, aren't they? And everybody's going to heaven. The Bible says, no, no. We're all sinful. We all need a Savior. And the only Savior that can do the job is Jesus Christ. That's the claim. No one taught like this man. No one. The third and final claim. Christ claimed to have shared the glory of God in heaven. If you look at John 17, 5, it says, And now, Father, this is Jesus speaking, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Glorify me in your presence with the glory I had before with you before this whole thing started. In other words, I'm God. We're God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They're standing there, these officials, and they're thinking, <laughs> no one talks like this. What do we do? They've, they've told us to go get him and bring him back. And you can do it, but I'm not. I'm not touching the dude. If he can do all that and, and say what he said, Surely he could zap me and I'd be gone in a second. So if you want to do it, that's up to you, bro. I'm not the guy. You know, years ago, as it relates to this, I remember trying to get my head around how Jesus could be God. And quite frankly, none of us can fully do that. We're human. But this one argument was probably more helpful for me than any other argument I've ever heard. And it comes from uh, C.S. Lewis. And <clears throat> I'll, for the, for the most part, close with this. But Lewis says in a quote, and I quote, he's talking about, before I quote him, he's talking about Jesus, Jesus had to be either truly the Lord or he had to be a lunatic. Think about it. Think about his claims. Or he had to just be a liar. There's almost no other substitute. It's one of, the, it's one of those three. So listen, listen now. C.S. Lewis was British, and so he says things a little bit different than we do. But listen to what he said. Brilliant man. He said, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready, this is what they say, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher. But I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg or else he would be the devil of hell 
You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can't shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, and he did not intend to. The logic's solid. He's either Lord, liar, or he's a raging lunatic. The logic is solid. So, the question, and I'll close with this final thought. Every single person in this room, including me, and probably more me than any of you, is a sinner. And we need God. We need Him as bad as Livia shared in her story. We're orphans. We're orphans who want, I don't even know what those things are called, hair bonnets, hair clips. So touched by our story. In our souls, we know we're orphans without Him. In our souls, we know we long to be loved deeply. And that is who our God is. The brokenness of the man in the story that I shared. I pray and I pray you pray with me. That I'd be able to tell him over the coming days. You're loved man. You're loved deeper than you ever knew. And if you're his. That's true for you today. You don't have to scratch out a life for yourself. Just rest. You are His, and He is yours, and it is the most wonderful gift, and it is a gift. We receive it through faith and repentance. We place our trust in Him to forgive us of our sins, and we repent. We stop doing our sin nature things, and we say, God, I want you more than I want any of that, and we follow Him, and through the power of His Holy Spirit, he comes in and changes your life from the inside out. That's the God.